knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last two weeks, we've been looking at the new section that we've seen here on danger. And uh, in this section, Paul defends Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency against several dangers that were coming against it there in the Colossian church. And before Paul got into this defense of these three specific dangers, he shares with us 10 things that we need to be in order to protect ourselves from these dangers. And now that uh, the last two weeks we've looked at these things that we need to be, We're going to jump into now the things that he specifically says, here's something that's coming against you guys that you need to be aware of uh, in order to defend against it. And so um, this morning we're going to be looking at the first danger that Paul defends against, which is empty philosophies. Now, as we look at what Paul says here about empty philosophies, we're going to realize that this danger was not only present there in the Colossian church, but it's also present today. Uh, It's very prevalent, unfortunately, today. And so this is a danger that we face, something that we need to be warned about, something that we need to be aware of so that we can avoid them, so that we can properly you know, uh, deal with these dangers that we face um, in the church world today. And so in verse 8, Paul's going to tell us of this danger of empty philosophies. And then in verses 9 and 10, he's going to share with us something that we really need to understand so that we can overcome these dangers. And so let's start by reading these verses and see what the Lord can teach us through his word this morning. Verse 8 says this, Beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principle of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So here in verse 8, Paul starts off with the word beware. The Greek word translated beware means to be in a constant state of watchfulness, to always be on the lookout for, to be on guard. When you and I are aware of dangers around us, it's just more natural for us to be watchful. It's more natural for us to be on guard. For example, if you were on a vacation at the beach and there was just a few other people there and, you know, it's kind of this private area and you're just lounging there in the sand and the sun, you're probably not going to be very on guard, very watchful. You think, you know what? Things are good. You know, there's no real dangers here. And so, you know, you wouldn't really be looking out for what might come to get me here on my, you know, beach vacation. But, you know, if you were a soldier storming a different beach, like the beach of Normandy on D-Day, that would be a very different beach experience. You'd be constantly looking out for danger because you would realize you're surrounded by an enemy who is trying to 
kill you. And so that, that recognition of, hey, I have an enemy, that recognition of danger would bring you to a place of, I'm aware of my surroundings and I'm going to look out and be watchful and be on guard so that nothing bad happens to me. So before you can really avoid danger, you got to know something very important. It exists. It's there. It's coming against you. Because if you don't think there's any danger, then there's nothing to avoid. There's nothing to be on guard against. You know, we see this a lot with our children. And so we have to help them recognize that there are dangers that they are ignorant of. You know, there's a danger that most kids are ignorant of. And, you know, it's the danger of the fact that cars in the street can drive very quickly. And if they hit you, you're in big trouble. But kids who are young, they're totally you know, oblivious of that. And they'll just run in the street and play in the street. And they don't think that there's any problem, that there's any danger, that there's anything that's going to hurt them. And so as parents, we say, hey, look both ways before crossing the road. Hey, don't play in the street because cars are coming and they could run you over. And then you're going to have some really bad issues with that. And so, but unless these kids get it, unless they understand, you know what? Hey, there's a danger. There's a danger that's facing you and you got to watch to make sure that this danger doesn't hurt you. Uh, and so we, we do that to instill that in our kids so that they'll actually be looking out for the dangers. But in the same way, you know, many Christians are kind of like those children who are completely ignorant to certain dangers that are coming against them. And so they just kind of run out in the street, so to speak, and they just kind of do their thing. Or maybe they're just kind of thinking, you know, life's just like this wonderful beach vacation and I'm just laying here and there's no problems in the world and it's so great and I don't have to worry about anything. But the reality is they're really kind of on that beach in Normandy and they're surrounded by an enemy that's seeking to destroy them, but they're ignorant of it. So they're not on guard. They're not watchful. They're not doing anything to protect themselves from the dangers that are around them. And so Paul wants us to recognize, hey, there are dangers that we need to be aware of, that we need to be watching out for, that we need to be on guard against. And then he gets very specific. Here's a specific danger that you guys are facing that's coming against you, and it's also a specific danger that we face as well. And he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. That you and I need to be watchful. We need to be on guard against those who would seek to cheat us through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, for those of you who have a different translation than the New King James Version, it's not going to use the word cheat. That's actually uh, not a good translation uh, of this word because the word actually means to take you captive. And that's where many of the translations translate it that way, which is a more... Um, literal translation, to carry one off as a captive, uh, to carry off treasure, to lead away from the truth. This Greek word was a military term that described what a conquering army would do to the people they had just conquered. They would take all their possessions, they would take all their spoils, but they would also take them captive. And one of the things that they would ultimately try to do would be to lead them away from what they once believed to kind of adopt this new land that they're now taken to. And so there was this captivity that tried to lead you away from your belief or lead you away in this context from the truth. And so Paul's using this Greek word to paint this picture for us of how big this danger is, of, of how you know, problematic this danger is for us, that we have an enemy. 
And this enemy is fighting against us. This enemy has a purpose. He wants to take us captive. And ultimately, he wants to lead us away from the truth of God's word, the truth of Jesus Christ. And notice the specific way that Paul says these people are going to try to take us captive, the way that they're going to try to lead us away from the truth. And that is through philosophy and empty deceit. And this philosophy and empty deceit, notice what it is according to and what it's not according to. It's according to the tradition of men and according to the basic principles of the world, but it's not according to Christ. And this is something that's very important for us to, to take note of here. He's connecting, you know, this philosophy that, you know, what they're trying to use to, you know, the tradition of men, the basic principles of the world, and we'll look at what that means. But the key here is it's not according to Christ. It's not based on Christ. Now, the reason it's important to see what this philosophy is based on is because it really determines whether it's good or bad. You know, I've heard a lot of Christians, that be, oh, we just got to avoid philosophy. Philosophy is so bad. The philosophy is so horrible. But I understand what they're talking about because they're speaking of specific philosophy. But we need to realize that the word philosophy just means the love of wisdom. Uh, and so the love of wisdom is not a bad thing at all. Uh, the love of wisdom is something that actually as Christians, we should probably be at the height of that. You know, God's word definitely encourages us to love and pursue wisdom. The book of Proverbs is full of that challenge. Actually, Proverbs 3, 13 and 14 says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. And so we're regularly encouraged, hey, you should seek after wisdom. You should love wisdom. You should pursue it because it's so important. But here's the key. Understand when the word of God is speaking about wisdom, it's always speaking about the wisdom of God. God never encourages us to pursue or to love or to want to have the wisdom of something other than God. And this is where when people will say, you know what, we need to steer clear of philosophy, what they're ultimately saying, hopefully as Christians, is we need to be aware of philosophies that aren't of God. Because, you know, the, the, the love of wisdom that is the wisdom of God, hey, that's something as Christians we should be pursuing and so this is why whatever our philosophy is connected to, whatever it's based on, is so vital because that's going to determine whether it's something we should pursue, whether it's something that is good, or whether it's not. And so Paul's clarifying that. Hey, this philosophy that's coming to you know, ultimately take you captive, that's coming to deceive you, it's ultimately founded in the traditions of men and in the basic principles of the world and not on Christ. So this is not the wisdom of God. This is a problematic thing because this is not good. Only the wisdom of God is the thing that we should be pursuing, but they're using this other wisdom ultimately to bring people into captivity. J. Vernon McGee wrote this. If you were to follow the history of philosophy beginning with Plato and coming down to more recent times, you would find that none of them have a high view of the inspiration of the Word of God. They are looking for answers to the problems of life, but they will not be found in human philosophy. A true philosopher is a seeker after truth, but truth is not found in human wisdom. Christ is the answer, the answer to philosophy. Paul wrote, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. 
But false philosophy is like a blind man looking in a dark room for a black cat that isn't there. There's no hope for its search for truth. Paul warns the Colossians to beware of this. And this is something that we have to recognize here is there's this reality that throughout the ages, the majority of the philosophy that we're hearing or being quoted or being spoken of is the philosophy of men. It's the wisdom of men, not the wisdom of God. And so many of these philosophers, even as J. Vernon McGee said here, they were against the inspiration of the scriptures. They were against the word of God. And so we need to recognize there's a very big difference between the love of the wisdom of man Versus the love of the wisdom of God. And as believers, we need the wisdom of God. And this was the philosophy ultimately that the Gnostics were trying to spread in Colossae. A wisdom that was apart from God. Oh, we have this secret, this great wisdom that only we have. But it's really just our man wisdom apart from the wisdom of God's word. Now, notice the two things that Paul says their philosophy is according to. First, he says it's according to the tradition of men. A tradition is a custom or belief or ritual that people adhere to. Now, here's another thing that I see a lot of Christians will just say, all traditions are bad. Well, just like philosophy in and of itself isn't bad, loving wisdom isn't bad, tradition in and of itself isn't bad. The the problem, once again, is what is the tradition based on? You know, if this tradition is is a man-made tradition based on man's ideas, that's what brings it to a place of being bad. But if these traditions come from God's word, these traditions are, are godly, then it's good that we do them. I mean, we have lots of traditions in the church world, uh, like the teaching of God's word. That's a great tradition that we adhere to and continue, and we should do. Why? Because it's biblical. It's spoken of in God's word for us to do it. The problem comes when we follow traditions that are unbiblical, that are not based in the word of God. And this was something that, you know, the Colossian church was struggling with. There was these traditions coming in, especially from those who were, you know, from the Jewish faith, who had a lot of traditions about works-based salvation, works-based relationships. They had these traditions, you got to do this, this, and this, if you want God to really love you. And they weren't based in scripture. And so we need to realize that, hey, Today, we have the same thing. There's a lot of traditions that have no biblical basis for them that we see in the church world. A very popular one that many denominations do is they baptize babies. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells us to baptize babies. Actually, it's very problematic because it gives parents this thought that, hey, they're good forever now. You know, they never have to even make a personal decision for Christ because, hey, we've done it all for them when they were infants. And, you know, the Bible doesn't teach that. It says, hey, first... We have to recognize who Jesus is, confess him as our Lord, and after that, we get baptized. And so this is just a tradition that's something that man has put in there that is not something the Word of God has told us to do. You know, when I was a kid in my dad's church growing up, they had a tradition that I thought was fun for a little while and then realized a bit weird and then finally came to the conclusion it was unbiblical. But it, they referred to it as the Jericho March. And, you know, during worship, you know, people would just get up and they'd start marching around, you know, the pews. And, you know, they thought it was so great. And, you know, I thought it was fun. I'd just get up there and we'd be running around while worship was going and doing the Jericho March. And, you know, based on, you know, Joshua fighting the Battle of Jericho. But I was ignorant to so like, wait a second. As I started to study and read the Bible more, 
why are we doing this? Because in this story, you know, this is for actually the walls coming down and God defeating, you know, the, the nation of the city of Jericho here. And so is that what we're doing here? Or do we want these sanctuary walls to come down on us? I mean, why are we marching and doing this? What is the purpose of this? And I remember finally coming to my dad and asking, like, why do we do this? Like thinking there's going to be some great biblical answer and, you know, this is a wonderful way to worship. And it's like, well, you know, there's, this really isn't the context of what's being said here. Okay, that, I realize that. So why are we doing this? Well, this is just a tradition that this church has always done. I was like, that's the worst answer ever. Then why do we continue it? Why are we still doing it if there's no biblical basis and foundation for doing it. And sadly, you get a lot of denominations who are more concerned with keeping up the traditions that have really no biblical foundation than saying, it's not biblical. Let's just get rid of it. Let's stop doing it because it's not purposeful and valuable for us to do that. And so this is one of those things, traditions that come that are man traditions that ultimately do this. And and if you remember the gospels, This was one of the biggest things that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. You know, the Pharisees had a lot of different issues, but things that Jesus brought was the fact that they put their traditions before the Word of God. And he actually rebuked them many times. I'll give you one instance of it. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, Jesus says this. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandments of God of no effect by your tradition. So God, Jesus says, commands that you need to honor your father and your mother. And this would be also including in that context of taking care of them, you know, when they are older and now you're someone who's earning. But you know what? The Pharisees, they found a loophole to having to continue to do this. And what they told people with their tradition of, you know what? If you have all this money that you've earned that you should be using ultimately to take care of your elderly parents, this is what you can do. You can say this money is gifted to God. And because it's gifted to God, sorry, I can't use it for you. And so I can't help you out. Now, with that, they had no problem using that money for themselves. Oh, it's gifted to God and me, but it's not able to be used for you. And so this was the way in which they used it to overcome honoring their father and mother and taking care of them as they were older in life. And so Jesus rebukes them saying, hey, your tradition has ultimately caused you to disobey the clear um, commandment of God. And this is something that we see so often where man-made traditions ultimately come against the commands of God, come against the word of God, and they keep us from doing the things that we should. So the first thing that Paul tells us their philosophy was according to is the tradition of men. And the second thing he says is the basic principles of the world. Now, this Greek word translated basic principles is speaking of the elementary principles of knowledge. This this word was was to to describe, you know, like uh, the basic principles of the alphabet, the ABCs or, you know, uh, one to ten. It was just like, you know, the elementary principles of knowledge that we would teach to kids. But notice, you know, where it's coming from. Yeah, obviously, you know, basic knowledge is not a bad thing. 
But once again, the source, just like, you know, philosophy is not a bad thing in and of itself. Traditions aren't bad in and of themselves. The problem here with this basic knowledge is the source. It's of the world. That's the kind of knowledge that it is. It's not the knowledge that's coming from God. And this is something we need to recognize it. As Christians, there is this constant attack against us to take us captive, to lead us away from truth by the basic knowledge of the world, which is opposed to God and what his word teaches us. And the thing that I think is is unfortunate with you know, many of us as Christians where we want to be seen among the world as wise in their eyes, as knowledgeable in their eyes. And so since what they declare is different than, than what we hold to, there are many Christians who will kind of abandon biblical truth in order to be seen as wise among the world, as, as knowledgeable among the world. Because the world will say things like, you don't really believe in creation, do you? I mean, you don't really believe that God flooded the earth and that Noah actually had an ark, do you? I mean, you don't really believe that, you know, there's miracles, right? I mean, and they say this in this condescending, you're a complete moron if you believe this mindset. And, oh, oh, um, I guess I don't. You know, I mean, there's this feeling of, I don't want to be seen as a fool. I don't want to be seen as stupid. And so I will say, yeah, oh, I don't believe God created the world or, you know, I don't believe that, you know, he flooded it and I don't believe these things that the Bible teaches. And a great example of this is with evolution. You know, I've seen so many Christians who are just like, I'm just going to accept this and go with it uh, because I don't want to be seen as foolish among the world as opposed to recognizing, one, if you even look at the evidence, you realize evident, the evolution has a huge amount of flaws and problems. But, you know, it's really not stemmed from that. It's stemmed from this, I don't want the world to see me as dumb and stupid, so I'm going to abandon the biblical account of creation and just adopt, you know, what the world says, how everything came by the Big Bang and, and all these evolutionary things. Uh, and so, you know, that's just one example, but there's so many things that is world-based knowledge that unfortunately is trying to be creeping in to the church, and we have to be very, very aware of it. George Barlow wrote this, Any philosophy though championed by the most brilliant intellects that tends to lure the soul from Christ, that puts anything in the place of him or depreciates in any way our estimate of his glorious character is false and full of peril. You know, a lot of the philosophies, a lot of the knowledge of the world that's being pushed toward us, it looks and seems from, you know, very intelligent, very wise, very smart. A lot of these things, you know, we kind of can maybe feel like, oh, wow, that person has all these degrees. And if he's saying this, you know, who am I to, to think that God's word is, is more intelligent than him? But we need to beware that they're ultimately doing this. It's not only just it's false when it comes against Jesus, when it comes against God's word. But I love what it says here. It's not just that it's false. It's full of peril. You follow that. You, you, you believe that. You accept that. It's going to bring really big problems into your life. So we need to beware of them, that they don't take us captive and lead us away from truth. You know, Charles Spurgeon wrote something that I love. He asked some great questions. What do you want with their traditions? Christ has revealed his truth to you. What do you want with the world's rudiments? You have gone beyond such elementary, useless knowledge as that. For you have got the truth itself. Cleave to Christ, beloved. Go no further than he leads you. 
or turn not away from him either to the right hand or to the left. In him are contained all the riches of grace and all the treasures of knowledge. If you would become truly wise, seek to know more of the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. I love these questions because when you really think about it, it's like, what does the world have that we don't? I mean, we have the truth in Christ. I mean, why is it that we're even looking to their philosophies, looking to their wisdom, looking to their knowledge? I mean, we have the truth. So we want to just dig in and grow in the truth in the word of God, the truth in Christ, and not get sidetracked by all that junk. So the first way that people are going to try to take us captive, to lead us away from truth, is through philosophy that it's according to the traditions of men, it's according to the basic knowledge of the world, and not according to Christ. But Paul says something else, which is more really what's going on here. He says they're also going to try to use empty deceit. Empty deceit that's also, you know, through tradition of men and through the knowledge of the world. But that's more of really what it is. I think that's a greater description for us because we hear that word philosophy and we think something else. But it's really empty deceit. The Greek word translated empty means to contain nothing, to be void of substance, to be false or fallacious. The Greek word translated deceit means to mislead, to give a false impression of something. It is that which deliberately causes someone or something to go away from that which is true. So what Paul is saying here is that people are going to try to lead you or take you away from the truth. They're going to use this misleading stuff that really contains nothing. And this is where I think it's so interesting because they don't package it this way. You know, when people are trying to deceive you, when you got false teachers, when you got, you know, these things that are just not true, no one usually packages it as, oh, we're going to offer you nothing and it's going to be great. You know, they package it in such a way as like, oh, I'm offering you everything. I'm offering you what you have to have. And if you don't have this, man, you're going to totally miss out. But it's not so we accept it. It's not till we start following it that we realize this is just empty. This is nothing. This doesn't have anything that I need. This doesn't sustain me. This doesn't help me. This doesn't fulfill me. This doesn't give me what I need at all. And sadly, it's, you know, we sometimes have to learn the hard way where we start following it, where we start accepting it, where we start abandoning biblical truth and start following worldly junk that we discover, oh, this, this doesn't actually meet with what they're telling me. They told me this would satisfy me. They told me this would fulfill me. They told me I needed this. And now I realize that wasn't true at all. So we need to be careful of this empty deceit. So one of the ways that we protect ourselves, one of the ways that we really help ourselves from not falling into this is first just be aware. Be aware that this is happening. Be aware that there are these philosophies that are ungodly. There's this empty deceit that's out there. It's coming with the traditions of men. It's coming with the basic knowledge of the world. And it's coming against biblical truth. It's coming against who Christ is. It's coming against the gospel. And we just need to be aware of that, that we're fighting this battle that's prevalent in our culture today so that we're watchful. So that when we hear things, so that when we see the newest craze and the newest book and the newest church growth and the newest whatever, we take it back to God's word and don't just say, well, if a lot of people are following it, it must be true. Oftentimes the opposite is the case. If a lot of people are following it, oftentimes it's false in many ways and it has a lot of worldly nonsense with it. And so we want to be aware of that, on guard against that. But then Paul takes us to another place. Don't just be aware. 
Don't just be watchful. Don't just be on guard. There's something else that you need to do to be protected from these things. And it's something that you need to know. You need to know something about Jesus and your connection with him and what he's done that will really help you overcome these things. Verses 9 and 10 says this. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So the first thing that Paul wants us to know about who Jesus is that will help protect us from these empty philosophies, this deceit, is this. In Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead, in Jesus dwells, sorry, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Greek word translated fullness means filled to capacity with nothing missing, completely full. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus is filled completely full with the Godhead. That means Jesus is completely God. He's not part God, mostly God. He is completely God. And notice he throws in that word bodily as well, because he wants us to know that not only is Jesus completely God, but he was completely God in a human body. So he's completely God and completely man at the same time, which is a huge thing that we have in the Bible that we're taught that's very important, has a lot of uh, different ramifications if you deny either of those. And as we looked at in chapter 1, this was the two main things the Gnostics were coming against, that Jesus wasn't completely God and that he wasn't man at all, that anything material was evil, and so Jesus couldn't be God and man both, where Paul makes it again very clear. He's completely God, and he did that bodily. He's also completely Man, and this is one of those things that we really need to understand because this is what is being attacked today. So many of the empty philosophies and deceit that are coming against us attack the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And so if we're not aware and confident in the fact that he was and is completely God and was and took on that full humanity while he was here, we're going to have some big issues because we're going to start falling in for a lot of the false lies that come our way. The second thing that Paul tells us that we need to know is the fact that you and I are complete in Jesus. So not only is Jesus completely God and completely man, but those of us who have accepted him are complete in him. The Greek word translated complete means to make full, to fill to the brim, to lack nothing. So Paul wants us to realize, hey, you and I, we are complete in Jesus. We have everything we need in Jesus. We lack nothing in Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. We have been given all things that pertain to life and and godliness. And where is it found? In Christ. He has given that to us. We are complete in him. It's not, oh, we got most things for life and godliness. No, we have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason you and I are complete and can be complete in Jesus is because of the first point that Paul made. It's because Jesus is completely God. 
Because if he's not completely God, he can't make us complete. If he's not completely God, he doesn't have the capacity to make us complete in him. And so people who are ultimately trying to undermine the deity of Jesus also are trying to undermine the completeness that we have in him. And so both of these are so vital to understand because this is another big thing that was being attacked there in Colossae, something that's being attacked here today as well, that you're not complete in Christ, that he hasn't done everything, that there's still more to be done, that there's, there's, you're still lacking some things that you have to kind of make up for because Jesus didn't do it all and you're not fully complete in him. That ultimately the message is Jesus was not enough. And that was one of the big teachings of the Gnostics. Jesus isn't enough. Oh yeah, he's good and it's great to know about him, but there is this knowledge that you have to have. There's more. And if you don't have this stuff, then you're not saved. If you don't have this stuff, then sorry, you're lacking and you're out of luck. So Jesus, yeah, he's good, but he's not enough. And there are other things coming out to get church that say, yeah, yeah, Jesus' sacrifice for your sins was nice, but it didn't save you completely. You still got works you got to do. I mean, it kind of did part of the job and then you get to do the rest. It wasn't enough. You now have to, by your works, ultimately save yourself. Jesus kind of started it, and now you're going to finish it. Or, you know what, Jesus was good, but if you don't follow these traditions, sorry, not saved. What he did isn't enough. You know, we have the same thing today, the same concepts of Jesus isn't enough, we got to add stuff to it, whether it's our works, whether it's some church tradition, whether it's a membership to some denomination, or, or whatever it may be. We keep adding to what's already complete. There's no need to add to something that's complete. And that's what Paul wants us to see, is you are complete in Christ, lacking nothing. So quit looking for things to add. Quit buying into the lie that there are more things you need to add, because you don't need to add anything. You're complete in Him. Now, something I think is important to understand here is that Paul says this is a fact to be enjoyed, not a status to be achieved. When he says you're complete in Christ, he's just saying, hey, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're now complete. It's just a fact to be enjoyed, to thank God for. I am now complete. It's not a status that you have to achieve. That, well, when I first asked Christ to save me, uh, I'm not complete. It's just kind of, if I want to get to complete status, then I got to do this, and I got to do that, and I got to do that. And then finally, woo, it's going to be so great when I get there, but I'm not there yet. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, no, immediately, the moment that you come into a relationship with Christ, you are now complete in Him. There's nothing you have to do to make yourself complete. It's in the present tense, right now. Not in the future tense. Well, you will be if you do this, that, and the next thing. No, presently, we are complete. You know, there's a poor European family who saved for many, many years to buy a ticket to sail across to America. And once at sea, they carefully rationed their cheese and their bread that they had for the journey. 
And they had a young son, and he was just sick and tired of eating cheese and bread, and he's complaining to his dad, and if I have another cheese sandwich, you know, I'm just not going to eat for the rest of the trip. And so his dad had the last nickel that he had. He gives it to his son. He says, you know what? Go to the galley, get yourself an ice cream, and, you know, (laughs) that's going to be the last thing that you're going to have. And so the son is gone for hours. And he shows back up with this huge smile on his face and his parents are like, you know, where have you been for all this time? And he's like, oh, I had three ice creams. I had a steak dinner. I had all I could eat. And they're like, you got all that for a nickel? And he said, no, it all comes with the ticket. For the whole journey, up to this point, they're just eating their rations, clueless of the fact that that ticket didn't just give them a place to sleep. It gave them all the food that they could eat. And so for the rest of this trip, this poor family ate like kings, but yet they were clueless that, you know what, it all came with the ticket. And I bring that up because I think too often as Christians, we miss the fact that when we put our faith in Christ, there's so much more that comes with it than just now you're saved, which is the most significant and important part of it. But now we're complete as well. It all comes with our faith in Jesus. And sometimes we're like those, you know, people were rationing out things, we're trying, we're working, and we're realizing, I already got it all. I got so much. It's all in Christ. I'm complete in Him. If I would just walk in it, if I would just live in it, I would be so blessed. John MacArthur wrote this, as a result of the fall, man is in a sad state of incompleteness. He is spiritually incomplete because he is totally out of fellowship with God. He is morally incomplete because he lives outside of God's will. He is mentally incomplete because he does not know ultimate truth. At salvation, believers become partakers of the divine nature and are made complete. Believers are spiritually complete because they have fellowship with God. They are morally complete in that they recognize the authority of God's will. And they are mentally complete because they know the truth about ultimate reality. So the first thing that Paul wants us to know to help protect us from these empty philosophies and these deceitful things is know that Jesus is completely God. He's completely man to know that we are complete in him. And the third thing that he wants us to know is another wonderful truth that we see here at the end of verse 10. We're told that Jesus is the head of all principality and power. The Greek word translated head means to have authority, to have control over, to be the chief or the supreme. And notice what Paul says that Jesus has this authority, this control and power over, over all principality and power. Now in Ephesians chapter 6, we're told what the principality and and powers are, says this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
So the principality, the powers, is speaking of ultimately in a general sense, more of the spiritual realm around us, but specifically as we see here uh, in Ephesians, and I think as Paul is speaking of well as well, it's not just any spiritual realm or what's in that realm, it's specifically speaking of the enemy that we have in that realm, Satan and his demons who are seeking to come against us. And as Paul says here in Ephesians, that's what our real fight is against. It's not right against flesh and blood, as much as it is against the spiritual hopes of wickedness in the heavenly places that are seeking to destroy us, that are trying to come against us. And here's the good news for you and I. Jesus, he has authority over them. Jesus has power over them. And as we're even going to see as we go through the rest of this chapter that he has defeated them on the cross, and this is something that should bring great comfort to us because the enemy that we need to be aware of, the dangers that are coming, Yes, they, we see them in people, we see them in the world, we see them in, in philosophy and deceitful wisdom and things of that nature, but the source, where it's ultimately coming from, is demonic. It's ultimately coming from Satan. It's ultimately coming from you know the spiritual host of wickedness who are influencing mankind to try and destroy the work of God and the people of God. And so we need to recognize that's really where the battle is. But the great thing for us is the one that we serve has authority over them. The one that we serve has conquered, has power. And so if we will stay connected to Jesus, we're all right, we're safe. He's that strong tower that we're told the righteous run into and they're safe. With him, we're fine. Because the enemy, they don't have anything against Jesus. It's not like, you know, we see in these movies where you got, you know, the, the good person and the, the enemy and they're both kind of equally powerful and they're having this battle and we don't know who's going to win. I mean, it's not like that at all. We have the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth versus a created being who has no power in comparison and could be completely wiped off the face of the earth, or all of existence at any point in time that God wanted to. So, you know, we stay with Jesus and we realize we can win this battle. We can be victorious in this, but also realize the reason why we're warned so much is on our own, we're in trouble. <laughs> if you're trying to fight Satan and the demonic forces or the world in your own strength, in your own power, you don't have what you need to be victorious. You don't have what you need to overcome that. You need to be dependent on the one who is in authority, the one who has overcome. And so Paul is bringing this up as an encouragement to us as he's telling us, hey, you know, beware of all this stuff. Recognize Jesus is completely God, completely man, that you are complete in him, but he also has complete power over your enemy. So depend on him, trust in him, know that he can give you the victory if you will rely on him and abide in him.